0: Well, in my study here at the church, I have many pictures on the wall and on bookshelves. Well over 20. I started counting this morning and gave up after 20. Now, it's not a massive room. So that many pictures, uh, plus a few thousand books in a 10 by 15 room, means a lot of clutter. It's not good decorating, The pictures aren't in there for that. They have a different purpose. Most of the pictures in my study fall into two categories, either of my family or pictures of old dead guys, heroes of the faith, godly pastor theologians of old. I've got a row of five pictures in a row. I call them the Fab Five. It's Luther, Calvin, Owen, Bunyan, and Spurgeon. The Presbyterians are separated from the Baptists. And they're in chronological order. <laughs> now, there are reasons for these kinds of pictures and for the family ones as well. I have pictures of my family in my study to remind me of them like you might have in your office. I have pictures of them in there not just because I should or because it's traditional to do so. It's, it's common to do so. I put pictures of my family in my office to remind me of them and to remind me that my work at the church, though it's important, it's not everything. I have pictures of my family in my office to stir up my love for them and to, well, to make me want to go home at the end of the day and to go home and see their smiles that I've seen in my study during the day. And I have pictures of godly, able men of the word from history to remind me what I'm supposed to do in my study, to remind me what I'm there for. I'm not a CEO. I'm not a businessman. I'm not there to surf the web. I'm not there to dilly-dally. I have pictures of men who served faithfully and gave painstaking effort, blood earnestness to the task of shepherding. To remind me of their model for wrestling with scripture and wrestling with God and prayer. To remind me to do the same. So almost every picture and almost every knickknack in my office serves that kind of purpose. It preaches to me. I need reminding. I need pictures. Well, 1 Peter 1 does something similar. Peter calls us to actions and attitudes, and he does so using pictures. He says we should live out our salvation in holy fear and awe because... God is our Father and He's the Judge. In verse 17. And then He says we should live out our salvation in holy fear and awe because we've been ransomed by Jesus' blood. Verse 18. We've been ransomed. It's a king's ransom. That saying, a king's ransom, is when something's expensive. It's like the amount of money it would take to ransom a king that's being held for hostage. In other words, a lot. Well, I'd like to use that phrase slightly differently this morning. 1 Peter 1 talks about a king's ransom, all right, and it's a ransom at great price. But we Christians are the ransomed, and we are not kings. We are not kings at all. Instead, the real king ransomed us, though we're rebels. Amazing. And the king's ransom was paid with nothing less than the king's very life. The king's ransom was the king himself. So turn to 1 Peter 1 in your Bibles this morning. We'll focus on verses 17 to 21 today but we'll start reading in verse 13 to get a running start. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your, hope, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's God's word for us this morning a passage which really is about holy fear. In verse 17, it says, Conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct and fear. Attitude and action. That's really the main point of these verses this morning. It's the one command of these verses. And we talked about fear a few weeks ago when we were in earlier verses as well and stretching into verse 17 at that time. We talked about how fear isn't terror... Or utter dread. But neither is it just respect. It's some kind of trembling with joy and faith. It, it fits with trust. It works with forgiveness and love. It seems like to our kind of thinking. That as love with, with God would grow. Fear would vanish. Or if trust in God would grow. Then, then fear would Would wane. But no, these grow together. They grow in the same soil. We'll come back to that command to fear God at the end of the message this morning, but I think it's helpful to first see what Peter says should lead to fear. Because really, that's what these verses are about. It begins with the topic of fear. Conduct yourselves with fear, but then the rest is motivation for fear or basis for fear, the reasons for fear. What should lead to conduct that is fearing the Lord? It's this thing we call redemption or ransom. It's this king's ransom. A ransom, and the word redemption, similar, mean being freed from some kind of bondage. The word redemption in the Old Testament especially can either look like this, being freed with great cost or being freed with great power. So the classic example of this is the Exodus. God redeemed his people, and he says over and over again as he's doing it, he's not redeeming them with stuff, with money, with great cost. He's doing it with his power but you also have other kinds of redemption where it's clear that there's a sacrifice to be made. There's that whole concept in Ruth of a kinsman redeemer. There you rescue a family member with cost and you take on their need as your own. What 1 Peter 1 verse 18 is showing us is God's great cost in our redemption but let's begin with what's implied by this concept of redemption or ransom. We have to begin with this, the desperate need for redemption. That's the first thing in your notes, the desperate need for redemption. We walk in holy fear, beginning with the desperate need for redemption. He says, verse 17, conduct yourself with fear. Then verse 18, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways of, inherited from your forefathers. If he's reminding them of their ransom, then he's also reminding them of their former bondage. Right? Redemption means being freed from bondage. Slavery is another way of putting it. So this whole thing reminds us that we are born helpless. We're born hopeless. We're born, like Ephesians 2 says, bound to certain ways blind to certain ways. We're broken, and we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix the problem. If we're in slavery, then we can't get outside the slavery to try to stop the slavery. We're bound. Can you feel the helplessness of this? And it's not just a vague kind of bondage or slavery. It's specific. We're bound to sin, to what verse 18 says, Feudal ways. We're bound to futile ways. No doubt that's talking about what God hasn't prescribed in his word for us. What he hasn't commanded. The things he has forbidden. It's not just wrong. It's also futile. Life outside of Jesus is futile. Can't you just own this and know this, even if you're not a Christian, from your own experience? Don't you know something of the futility of this life? There's an emptiness about it. Solomon in the Old Testament said it's like grasping after the wind. You you can grab all you want, but it just slips right through your fingers. So we want this. We want that. We wish it would be this. We wish it would be that. We wish we had more of something. We wish we had a different kind of something. We wish we just had a new something or other. And Solomon says it's all just grasping After the win, it's all futility. Well, what Peter is telling us here is we're bound to that futility. We're actually enslaved to that kind of feudal living. Why? We inherited it. This phrase in Peter's time that they inherited these feudal ways, the word inherited here would have been a good and nice thing in Peter's time for Peter's culture and readers. It'd be like the word heritage. No one says, I got a horrible heritage. Heritage is usually a good thing. This is my heritage. You're kind of proud of it. You're proud of being Irish or or whatever. Well, Peter uses that kind of word, but he obviously uses it in a negative way here. You inherited futility from your forefathers. I think he means to say that we've inherited it both internally and externally, right? It's caught. It's caught. And it's taught. We're born that way. And we get pretty good at walking that way too. We see it around us and we do what we see. But we weren't the victims. Don't, must, don't misunderstand. We, we weren't the victims either of our parents or of our surroundings. We were born in this bondage, yes. But we were all quite willing to go on in this bondage. Quite willing to be slaves. How stupid. How How frightening. What a desperate state. So Christian, let's start here. There's no hope for walking in the holy awe that Peter calls us to here in God's word if we don't keep before us this reality of our former bondage to sin, our problem, our need, our desperate state. You don't move beyond it. Well, you have more to the story than just that, but you you don't move beyond it. We must always see the need or we'll never really fully appreciate the prescription like we should. If you're not a Christian, you got to know that this thing of the desperate need for a redemption, this is 101 to the Bible. This is 101 to relationship with God. This is 101 to your eternal destiny. It has to start here. You can't You can't shortcut it. Desperate need for redemption. But then Peter moves on, secondly, to the unthinkable cost of redemption. It's an unthinkable cost that we were ransomed. He says in verse 18, You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. Now when Peter talks about Jesus' blood, and then he talks about a lamb, and a lamb without blemish or spot, what he's doing is pointing us back to the Old Testament. He's tying Jesus into everything that came before. He's saying what came before was all pointing to him. It's all about him. You see, there's not just one story or one act or one worshipful thing in the Old Testament that has to do with blood, lamb without blemish or without spot. It is all over the Old Testament. There are several examples of this. And Peter probably has many or all of these in mind as he unpacks this in 1 Peter 1. He could be thinking, he probably is thinking, of the story of Isaac, where Abraham finally got his promised son. And then God, in Genesis 22... Told Abraham to take him up to a hill and to sacrifice his only son to God. I mean, it just seems wrong, if not mean. But God's testing him. The word test is used throughout Genesis 22. God is testing him, but God is also showing Abraham, I think, something of what it means for a father to sacrifice his son. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. As they're going up to the hill for the sacrifice, Abraham is obeying. The son is confused. What? Isaac says, where's the lamb, dad? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. Loaded words. I mean, he doesn't know whether God's going to provide an alternative or not. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham knew that God could raise the dead. That's why he went through with it. But nevertheless, God stopped him just as he had the knife up in the air. And just then, Abraham saw behind him a a ram caught in thorns. There's the sacrifice. God provided it. Maybe what Peter has in mind is the Passover. In Exodus 12 were there. God's wrath would go through the land there in Egypt and take out the firstborn of every house, except those who, in faith, sacrificed a lamb without blemish or spot, and put that lamb's blood on the doorposts of their house. It signified, "I'm on your team. Don't come get us." And then the angel of death passed over those homes. A lamb without blemish, without spot, blood on the doorposts. You can think of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Blood everywhere, right? There's all kinds of blood. The the priest has to sacrifice for himself to prepare himself to make sacrifices for the people. You put blood here, you put blood there, put a little blood on the, the altar... And really this is just a more elaborate version of any of the sacrifices that were to be made for sin in the Old Testament throughout the year. Maybe Peter also has in mind Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. His soul makes an offering for guilt he shall bear their iniquities. I think Peter's taken all of that and he's cramming it into the life and death of Jesus like John the Baptist did when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So these Old Testament sacrifices didn't save but in vivid and grotesque ways. They very powerfully proclaimed a few things. They preached a few things. One, that sin equals death. When you got blood, blood, blood all over again and again and again, you can't help but think, death. The payment for sin is death. Two, the Old Testament sacrifices portrayed a need for righteousness and a problem with not having it. Someone has to be righteous. You need a lamb without blemish or without spot because, oh, you've got plenty of blemishes and lots of spots. And hence, thirdly, the Old Testament sacrifices portrayed the possibility of a substitute. That in God's saving economy, somehow... The righteous can pay for the unrighteous. But again, the Old Testament sacrifice didn't really pay for these sins because lambs aren't righteous. But they might be clean. They may not have a growth. That one doesn't have a mole. Great. But can that pay for immorality? No, you need the moral to pay for the immoral. You need one without blemish or without spot, In his soul, you need sinlessness. You need perfect righteousness. That's what God requires of us. That's what we need but don't have. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 summarizes our hope so well. For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin, to be treated as sin, to bear sin. Him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, I'll take your sin and pay for it. I'll give you my righteousness. You will be treated like you're righteous. Through faith, I will do this. It's amazing. But Peter, back to Peter, he also mixes some metaphors here. He says Jesus is the true sacrifice. That's an Old Testament picture. But he also really says Jesus is the true ransom or redemption right he uses the old testament language of sacrifice mingled with ransom we've been ransomed not with gold or silver those are metals that are precious some of the longest lasting metals we have the strongest metals we have but even still they perish they perish we've been ransomed with the precious blood of christ I think that contrast between silver and gold and Jesus' blood does a few things. First, it teaches us that we can't buy salvation. You can't work your way up to God in the Tower of Babel, and you can't buy him like he's a corrupt politician. One guy tried this, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. He tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit from Peter, And Peter said, may you burn with your money, which is kind of a nice translation. Really, the Greek says, to hell with you and your money. Literally, it's what it says. You can't buy God. This language also teaches us of what is important, what has worth. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What if you had all the gold and silver in this world? What could you do with it? Well, You could do a lot of things. One thing you can't do is be forgiven. One of the things you can't do is get God on your side because you have a lot of gold and silver. Jesus is better than gold and silver. Like it says in Job, coming to see who God is is like this. It's like... It's like burying your gold and silver in the dirt, and the Almighty is your gold and silver. Or like Jesus says in Matthew 13, it's like a guy who comes across a field, and there's a treasure in the field. What does he do? He buries it, and he goes, and he buys the field. He gives up everything he has to buy this field. So you have the treasure. The treasure is Jesus in The gospel. This language also teaches us something about the cost of our ransom. Again, it was a king's ransom. The king was not of the ransomed. The king paid the ransom. And he paid it for his enemies. And he did so with his blood. He did so on the cross, the cruel cross. So Peter's trying to get us to tremble at the reality that Jesus died on our behalf. We've all seen movies where the hero sacrifices his life for another. Maybe someone's hanging on a cliff. The hero is the one hanging and someone's helping him, but they're both going down together, and the hero lets go, saving the person who was trying to save him, but knew he wouldn't survive. Or like that movie Stranger Than Fiction, uh, Will Ferrell's character shoves a boy out of the way of an oncoming bus, the boy is saved, but, but Harold Crick, Harold Crick, is that his name? Is smacked by the wall of the bus. Imagine being the recipient of that kind of sacrifice. Just try to put yourself in those shoes. Imagine that immediate reaction. It's not a trite moment, is it? Someone just died for you? That is not a giddy moment. You don't go, man, whatever I have left, however many years I have left, they're all bonus. Just go, mad, wild, you know, heels clicking, just excited to live. And No. You don't understand the gravity of the moment. Imagine this person who traded his life for yours as the president of the United States. You know, the president has Secret Service agents who are trained to do this, willing to do this, to trade their lives, become human shields, take the shot, uh, throw themselves on a bomb to protect the president's life. But imagine some Hollywood story, too far-fetched to ever be made into a movie, where an agent is the one in danger, and the president is the one who trades his life for the agent's where the president jumps in front of an incoming bullet or lays on top of an explosive device to save the lives of an agent or agents. Imagine being that agent. I mean, you'd feel dumb, frankly, wouldn't you? It's not supposed to be that way. But don't stop there, because that's only scratching the surface. You see, the vast majority of Secret Service agents are noble and good and hardworking and... Sacrificial men and women. We're not. That's not our natural spiritual state. We're not faithful, hardworking servants in Jesus' kingdom. We were his enemies. We were rebels. We were traitors. With our forefathers, we joined forces with God's archenemy, and we have willfully been born into a Stupid, futile opposition where we belittle him, we ignore him, we dethrone him in our hearts and our actions. You and I are no faithful servants of the state. We were the Osama bin Laden's of God's kingdom. And Jesus is no president He is infinitely greater than the best of our presidents. He doesn't get elected as if he needs our approval. He doesn't get four years in office or maybe four more if he has enough approval rating and enough money to campaign. His hands aren't tied by Congress or Senate. He's the king. He's the judge. He's eternal. He always is the king, the judge. He's the righteous one. He's all-knowing. And he ransomed us he laid down his life for us he paid the price not a trite thing our redemption was costly but not for us it's free to us but because of the great cost of christ thirdly let's talk about the grand plan of redemption That's how these verses come to a head. Verses 20 and 21, Peter writes, He was foreknown, Jesus was, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This talks about the grand plan of redemption. It almost looks like a parenthesis, but it's not. It's praise. It's an exclamation. He's furthering that, that argument for why you should conduct yourselves in fear during your pilgrimage down here. One, because of his blood. And now, because of who he is in this great plan that led up to his blood. This plan. Was planned before the foundation of the world. When it says he was foreknown, it doesn't mean the Father knew who Jesus was. Somewhere up in heaven, there's this other guy named Jesus, and I know him. No, foreknown means foreordained, foreplanned. Jesus was the plan before the foundation of the world, before creation ever began, let alone before a fall, before sin. God is not on plan B, or C, or D, or Z. Sin doesn't mess up his plan. He doesn't create sin, but in his plan, he planned for sin to be, and he planned for sin to be fixed. We call this the covenant of redemption in theological terms, that before the foundation of the world, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in covenant together to do this thing the father choosing, the son purchasing, the the spirit drawing. They're going to do this thing. That's the plan. And they didn't have to do it. That's what's so amazing about all this. It didn't have to be this way. God was not constrained by some external cosmic law or principle like, you should always forgive if you can No, God is just. He could have just wadded up the whole thing and thrown it into the abyss of hell. He chose to save in his wisdom and for his glory. So Peter connects a dot between before creation ever began, Jesus was the plan, and then brought to fulfillment. He was made manifest in the last time. The last time, the fullness of time, as it says elsewhere in Scripture. Like Ephesians 1, this was a plan for the fullness of time. Or Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. It's another way of saying when the time was just right. Why was it just right then? Well, I don't know. But he does. And he says, when the time was ripe, Jesus came. All this for you. That's what it says in verse 20. He was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. You. Wow. What love. How personal. And it doesn't stop there. He applied it to us. Verse 21 it's through him that we are believers. Again, we see yet another indication in 1 Peter chapter 1 of God's grace being sovereign grace. In him you believe. You were foreknown, verse 2 told us. He caused you to be born again, verse 3 told us. And now verse 21, through him you are believers. He he gives faith, he grants it. Now lastly, we come to the manifold results of redemption, the fourth thing in your notes. You see, the results of redemption are scattered throughout these verses. Fear is one of those. Fear is really the main one in a sense, and we'll still get to that. But there are others. There are five Fs, I think, in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 to 21, about the results of redemption, what it means for us, what it looks like. I mean, one we've already talked about, and that's faith. Faith, through him you are believers in God. Faith or belief is just another way of saying that in redemption, God makes us, makes us conscious and happy about about redemption, about Jesus' plan. Conscious and happy about it. We received it. We didn't do anything to get it. We didn't earn it. We are just simply awakened to see our need for redemption, to see Jesus' life and death as the only hope for our redemption. To give up all other forms of salvation, all other forms of self salvation, and embrace God's only plan for salvation. Faith is this it's putting all your eggs in the Jesus basket. It's specific, not just believing that Jesus existed, but all of who he is and all of what he did. This faith is personal. You have to believe that it was for you. You have to believe that something was happening for your sins at the cross. That when Jesus prayed for those who would believe in him after his death, he was praying for you. That God loved you and gave his son for you. And that leads to forgiveness. The second F. It results in forgiveness. The blood of Christ being, it says in verse 19, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, that was Jesus when the sacrifice was made, but that phrase, without blemish or spot, is us in faith, in Christ, by grace, through faith, we who were once bound to futile sin living. We now, are without spot or blemish. Jesus takes the death that we deserved, and he gives us the righteousness that God required of us, but we could never, ever achieve. In other words, he is our righteousness. Our righteousness is in heaven. John Bunyan tells us how he came to understand this, his conversion. He said, one day as I was passing in the field, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought that I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness. For it was standing right there before him. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made my righteousness better or that my bad feelings that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. As the Apostle Paul put it, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith. Are you ready to to say to God, I have no righteousness of my own. That's what it means to become a Christian. It starts there to acknowledge I have no righteousness of my own. Or as one hymn puts it, nothing in my hands I bring only to thy cross I cling. When we have that kind of forgiveness there's third a third f freedom Remember, verse 18 said we've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Ransomed means redeemed, it means rescued, it means freed. But this may not be the kind of freedom that you think. Yes, we've been ransomed from bondage, but that doesn't mean autonomy. It's not the emancipation of the slaves in our country many years ago, though that was good. No, we've been ransomed from, according to Peter here, the old feudal ways. We've been ransomed from a lifestyle. Things change in him. We're not autonomous. Jesus died, Peter will later go on to say, to bring us to God. Communion, relationship, fellowship. This is all over the New Testament. Like in Romans 6 where Paul says, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You were not bound to righteousness at all. When you're a slave of sin, who cares what's righteous? But now, he says, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You've traded freedoms in slaveries. Galatians 4 You were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be adopted as sons. And if we're sons and daughters, then we do what our dad does. We follow him. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, Christian. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Or, as Peter will later say in chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Peter, as we said a few weeks ago, insists, yes, there's forgiveness from sin, but there's also freedom from sin. There's freedom from the penalty of sin, but there's also freedom from the power of sin. There's pardon and purity. There's healing and holiness. One is instantaneous, the other one is progressive. But so much of what it means to be a Christian means growing in this thing, wanting more and more freedom from the power of sin, more and more purity, more and more holiness. This is God's saving package. Grace, as we sing, has a double cure. It saves from wrath and it makes us pure. Spurgeon gives a great illustration about this. He always does, right? Anything he says. Here's one of them. He says a a man asking Jesus to heal his blindness... Will Jesus take any money for it? I mean, the man doesn't have much, but whatever he has, he offers Jesus money to heal his blindness. Jesus won't take any money. Jesus will heal absolutely freely. But once the man's healed, he can no longer sit on the city street and beg as though he were a blind man. He'll now be called upon to do what people with sight can do, right? Right? In those days, blindness meant that's it. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to you know, hold out a cup or a hat or something and, and you'd get help. But you can't do that in those days unless you have need. And, and Spurgeon tells, tells us that once God heals our blindness, we're called upon as one with sight to do what God calls us to do. To do it in fear. That's the fourth F, fear. Don't forget, that's how it began. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that, remembering that, remembering what he did, remembering who he is. Fear? Really? Yeah, trembling with holy awe and wonder and joy because the king of kings sacrificed himself for you because his father sacrificed his son for you. Tremble with awe at the Savior's blood. This is why our Lord gave us the communion meal of remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me because we're forgetful people and we forget the penalty of sin. We forget the power of the gospel. We forget the sacrifice, the pain of Jesus upon the cross. This is why we read the gospel accounts more than once. Right? We know who Jesus is. We know what he did. We believe it. We've read it. We've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, like it says in the back of the bottle of your shampoo, rinse, then repeat. You do it again. And again and again and again. You have to see him. Like those pictures in my study. We need to put Jesus and his gospel ever before us. And only then... By his grace will we tremble at his sacrifice for us. Never get used to his sacrifice. Never stop putting his blood before you. We sang and can it be earlier in the service and that does such a good job of reminding us of the what of the gospel? What? Really? The really of the gospel? Another hymn that does that is Isaac Watts. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity. Grace unknown in love beyond degree. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. tis all that I can do. There's one more F. Firm hope. That's ah, cheating a little, I know. Really, hope is H, but couldn't do four Fs and then something else. So It's firm hope, and that's how this thing ends here. The end of verse 21. All this, Jesus' resurrection, his later glory, all that, so that your faith and hope are in God faith and hope not in sin it lies christian it lies it deceives it's sneaky faith and hope not in sin faith and hope not in self faith and hope not in stuff faith and hope in God there With him there is much hope indeed.